Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like the colour green, belts or scorpions, or dogs, hogs and logs, or horses, and wait for this, porpoises and courses. So it's all about online learning that we're all doing at the moment during lockdown. What do you think about that? Are you learning any special skill at the moment, Sam? Um, I am Obviously not. No. <laughs> do you know I'm? I'm do you know I'm, I'm doing? Busy. I'm doing more exercise and I'm reading more and I'm going to the theatre a lot. So anyway, we. Oh yes, yeah. We will be following. I, I tell you what I did do yesterday. I um I I looked at the first line of all of Shakespeare's plays. Goodness yeah. me! I, I just suddenly became massively interested in that, and uh, I was surprised. I was interested and surprised. <laughs> or, or James, did you know that the, the history of rubbish is all about truth, secret habits, fixed wrestling matches in ancient Egypt, sweets, and political discontent? Hmm. I didn't, but we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Did you know, Sam? Did you know that the history of boredom? is in fact all about British Empire, transatlantic travel, card games, the armed forces, and of course, lockdown in COVID-19 time. It is. I really enjoyed we've, our, our episode on boredom. We've just done that. I've enjoyed all of our um, all of our lockdown episodes. I know. Actually. I feel it's time to move on, though, from lockdown. I feel we need to go back to normalcy. I think we need some, some sort of fun in our life. Don't you think? Oh, OK. Yeah, well, let's do the history of fun. Let's do the history. I think we should do the history of conversation. Ah. Which I think would be brilliant. I think we should do balconies first, though. Balconies, okay, well, fun, yeah. conversation, all sorts of stuff. Good. Well, um, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know yet, I suspect many of you do, but the man sitting opposite me, and he's not sitting opposite me because we're on the other side of town, the man's not sitting opposite me. He is the moment of stillness before the standing ovation. Mm-hmm. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And what is extraordinary is how great minds think alike across town. Because the man not sitting opposite me, well, frankly, he deserves a standing ovation. It's the famous historical <laughs> adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Ah, hello, hello. Um, well, you're excited about today, aren't we? Um, I think we're very excited. I think we're going to do today is, is, is fun. Um, I... As always, I start thinking about our subjects in relation to what we've done before. And um, I thought, well, I don't know anything about applause. But then I realised that, of course, I do. <laughs> and it's like, well, we've done some stuff on applause. Um, I was watching something uh, on telly because there is no live sport on telly at the moment. It's a terrible, terrible tragedy. But they were showing a bit of footage of a uh, bus celebration, a bus tour of a winning team mm. going through, I think it was the middle of Manchester, I think it was Manchester City in, in 2012. It was really interesting and it made me think about all of the uh, other sporting heroes who have been carried through big cities with people waving flags and people applauding, whether it's the Ashes or the Rugby World Cup or the recent Cricket World Cup. And um, and I suddenly thought, well, it's a bit like a Roman triumph, isn't it? We've written about Roman triumphs oh, in our in our book, we The have. Uh, Histories of the Unexpected, The Romans, where they paraded through Rome with their captured captives in chains in front of them and the booty behind them. We wrote about it in, in relation to collecting art. 
Actually, uh, we did indeed. Uh, so yeah, it made me think about well. Um, first of all, uh, applause in a kind of a, on a massive national scale. Really interesting. So we're doing the history of applause, the history of clapping today because of the clap for the NHS, which has been happening on a weekly basis at the moment. And I think it's quite an extraordinary collective sort of national symbol of hope and of appreciation for the National Health Service in the United Kingdom for the terrific work that they're doing. And I think it's worth just pondering on the significance of that, because I've done it a couple of a couple of weeks now ever since it's been going and and it there is a sense of sort of community in the street in which I live in everyone is out on their doorsteps at eight o'clock uh, I went out with a an enormous uh, saucepan and wooden spoon the other day and made a, a quite a racket and set off the dog next door um, but um, but it I think it, it's important for what it symbolizes and it isn't just a sense of appreciation for you know, very brave and heroic frontline NHS staff. But I think people are also doing it in order to show a sense of community and a sense of solidarity and to be to be out there feeling that they too are part of something and are doing something and are connected to their, their neighbours who otherwise they probably wouldn't see. Yes, yeah. Um, but my wife works for the NHS, as you know, James. I know she does. And, um, we've been we've been talking about it a lot, so she's been uh, spending a lot of time at work, obviously. Um, and we just you we were talking last night about what the applause means to them, and it does mean a very, very great deal. And it, the the coverage in the papers has has really helped, and all over all over all over the internet has really helped people um, in in those frontline positions realize that they've got a great deal of support from all over the country in all different walks of life, all different places. Yeah. Very powerful thing. It's brilliant. Brilliant. So, but your... So the question is, yeah, how do we think about applause? I've already um, suggested the, uh, the the national level of applause and that, that itself has a history. How else won't we think about it? Uh, there are many, many ways to to think about it. It, of course, goes back to the to the ancient world and there are all sorts of ways of clapping and politics and how how popular you were um but it's something that's very very basic the the instinct of a baby to clap you know a newborn baby to sort of in the first few months starts clapping and certainly the first year starts clapping so it's a very basic instinct and you could see that on one level uh and then at the other end you could see a more sophisticated clap of a an opera goer knowing precisely how to cup their hands in a very refined clap and then applauding at a particular point. So it's knowing about when and when not to clap. It's also linked to politics. Do you think about the standing ovation at the State of the Union speech or address in the United States? Uh, the fact that you don't clap in the House of Commons, but you can in Canada and in the Scottish and Welsh National Assemblies. You wouldn't clap ordinarily clap in church. So applause in church is something that is against the sanctity of proceedings, although there are certain opportunities when you might be able to clap in church, such as after a after a wedding when somebody get when people get married. Applause often accompanies great speeches. So if we think about some of the great speeches of the 20th century, the JFK we chose to go to the moon or Martin Luther King, I have a dream. They are all supported by thunderous 
applause. There is also, Sam, a science of clapping. Did you know that? Clapping, I did, clapping, yeah. clapping spreads like an infectious disease and that people respond to sounds around them. And it all depends on the room size. There's also there are also people who in the past were play were paid to go into cloud crowds and clap or boo. And this is a phenomenon called the clack. And it started in ancient Rome and then went into France and carried on into the 18th century. And clapping is quite it's quite democratic. So you represent yourself when you clap. And how do we clap? in a digital world where we consume remotely, where it's much more about the number of likes that you have that show popularity. I just watched the National Theatre's Jane Eyre and it was uh, beamed in through YouTube into my living room. And at the end of it, I actually got up and clapped because it was so good. <laughs> um, a really, really stripped, a really stripped back production. I mean, extra extraordinarily sort of sparse, bare stage. It was almost like you saw the guts of the production. Absolutely, absolutely fantastic. I'm not sure whether it's still on, uh, but it was going to be on for a week. Absolutely extraordinary. And there are also different types of clapping. You know, the Japanese have what they call stormy clapping. In ancient Rome, there are all sorts of different styles of clapping that they had. And did you know that the Guinness Book of World Records records the most claps in a minute at 1,020. Can you imagine how fast that is? <laughs> imagine how sore your hands would be. Imagine how, <laughs> imagine how sore your hands would be. So there, there we are, we go all there. And also occasions when you clap, occasions when you clap and occasions when you don't clap, different types of clapping, the sort of slow clap, though when somebody is yeah. showing boredom and frustration with something or just wants people to get off the, off the stage. Or to stop talking like this. Exactly. See what I've done there, James. Yes, shut me down completely. <laughs> no, it was, um, it's brilliant. And obviously, um, you know, the part of the, the parcel of why we do this kind of mind map explosion at the beginning is, is to realise that all of those different ways of, of thinking about clapping, even if it's in the present day, you can apply to the past. So James has said there's a science of clapping. Fascinating. Well, you can look at, at the history of that science of clapping and how our understanding of clapping has changed over time. Or you can look at different people studying, um, people paid to, to, to clap uh, for audiences. Like James said, the clack. So there are loads of different um, sort of levels of history which we can you can explore through all of those different approaches yes which is fascinating I particularly like the idea of um, applause at speeches because it makes you think about the soundscape of history yes. and how historians are very often focused on words they're focused on the written word or the audio word which has been captured in some kind of oral history or an interview and if you think that it, it, studying those words in isolation only ever gets you to half of the understanding there's a lot of other human body language going on as well and, and also I mean, it doesn't have to be human but all sorts of sounds which can help you understand help your understanding of the past and I think that applause is obviously one of those key ones. Yes, and one of the one of the most classic uh, occasions when people would would applaud is with theatre, and this starts me with my first point, uh, first example, which is about uh, applause at the theatre, and there are all sorts of 
you know, ways of, of, of looking at this. I mean, one is the, the cultural differences around people clapping. When do you, when do you clap? How do you respond as, as actors on the stage? The role of the author, the playwright who comes out onto the stage. Um, different audiences would know how to clap at particular points. People would be educated to clap at particular points. In Austria, um, so the brilliant actor Simon Callow says, is there, there is a tendency to actually rather like in, uh, in opera to clap at the end of an aria, to clap at the end of an actor's great speech or soliloquy. Uh, so which is something that would be would would not go down well in a in a posh theatre in London or the West End, for example. But the example that I want to talk about in particular is something that I've been interested in for years, ever since I read David Lodge's book, Author, Author, which if you haven't read it, is a brilliant novel about the novelist Henry James. And it's about a time in Henry James's life when he sees the rewards that he's getting, the royalties from his novels going down uh, in value and he worries about how he's going to be able to continue to sustain himself. And what he does is he looks at other successful playwrights, people like Oscar Wilde and the fame and fortune that they're seeing and he decides to put on, start writing some plays himself. And one of them, Guy Domville, he succeeds in getting it opened in London at St James's Theatre on the 5th of January 1895. And it's produced by a brilliant actor and producer, uh, George Alexander, who plays the title role of Guy Domville. But the play absolutely bombs. And on the opening night, Henry James actually isn't there. Instead, he's just down the road watching Oscar Wilde's new play, An Ideal Husband. And the audience for Guy Domville is very split. It's in two halves, really. The first half are the author's friends, who are, of course, all behind it. And the second half are made up of uh, literary and artistic Londoners who absolutely despise it. And by about the third act, they are fed up with the main character who chooses to go and live in a monastery over marrying a, a, a widow. And they just, you know, they just think it's absolutely dreadful. Now, it was customary at this in this period for at the end of the play for the audience to call out author, author or for the actor on stage to call out author, author. And then for the author to come out on stage and along with the other actors to receive the applause and the acclaim of the audience. And so this happens on this night. Um, Henry James manages to get back from Oscar Wilde's play, makes it into the behind stage. The curtain call is it comes down. His friends outside in the audience begin shouting, author, author. And he comes out with his uh, with Alexander, his sort of front man. And he meets a very mixed response because the audience is completely divided. His friends are all sort of, you know, uproariously clapping, but the, the others are sort of jeering and, and, it, and it's not very good. And he wrote about a week later, about a few days later in a letter to his brother, all the forces of civilization in the house waged a battle of the most gallant, prolonged and sustained applause with the hoots and jeers and catcalls of the roughs, whose roars 
like those of a cage of beasts at some infernal zoo, were only exacerbated, as it were, by the conflict. And at this point, receiving this, he flees the stage and the actor is left to basically apologise for what's gone on and to say that he will do better in future. And after this, Henry James promises his brother that he will never write another play and he is good to his word. So in that, in that instance, the applause that is supposed to be rapturous and celebratory actually turns him back to novel writing. Oh, I know. That's fascinating. I know. Isn't it's it? terrible. Yeah, I really isn't it? enjoyed that. Brilliant. Yeah. You should read the book, Author, um, Author, by, by um, David Lodge. I shall, I shall put it on my, my list of many books you've told me to read. <laughs> I've got kind of a. a <laughs> uh, but I shall put it to the top of that list. Oh, James, oh, oh, oh. I've just read Blood Meridian. Uh, absolutely. Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian over the, week, over the weekend. Absolutely brilliant. We, we've done a history of scarring and scalping. Uh, Sam, you would love it. It's very dark and bleak, um, but it's absolutely phenomenal. It follows a group of, of scalp hunters uh, in the late 19th century. Extraordinary. Do you know what, James? I'm going to put that on the list of very many books that you've told me to read. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Good. Um, I love this idea of people being paid to clap and, mm. um, and fake applause, mm. essentially. I think that's quite an appropriate thing to talk about. This, yes. Um, in our, in our modern world, what's fake, what's real. And this idea of the claque you mentioned seems to yes. have originated in France in the 17th century, but then it becomes a, an actual sort of institution in the 19th century. It becomes an institutionalised thing. And I was sort of fascinated in how you study that. Mm. So um, I've looked into this a bit and I found a really wonderful article from 1847, which is a commentary on the phenomenon of, of paid applause. And it, it's interesting because it tells you about how it works, but then it also suggests how you might get into it in a, a bit deeper as a historian. There is a certain price put down for simple applause. Another for applause accompanied by laughter. A third for applause mingled with genuine tears. One for admiration, another for enthusiasm, a good round sum for spasms, hysterics and fainting fits. The author has but to pay. His dainty dish will be served up to him according to its nature and the figure at which it is numbered in the bill of fare. This is no joke. It is pure and simple earnest. The moucheur, the blower of noses and flourisher of pocket handkerchiefs at a new play professes a trade as well established as that of a baker or a grocer. The sangloteur or sober studies his role beforehand as a part of his profession. A female in the first boxes undertakes a fainting fit or convulsions ad libitum. And if she can sport a hat and feathers, an embroidered pocket handkerchief and a gold smelling bottle, her price rises rapidly and she is paid in proportions to the sympathy, her elegance and the weakness of her nerves at the tragic scene. So you've got not only people applauding, but people being paid to respond in different ways as well, which I think is wonderful. The clacker at the origin of the institution was a volunteer, ill-paid or paid only by the recompense of admission to see the play in return for the applause bestowed. I love that. So the whole business of a clacker has its own history and how it started off here with not being paid. He was usually a friend of the hairdresser or the dresser of the theatre, but the trade throve and prospered and became a trade in itself. 
So you've got this sense of that trade being invented, how it worked and how it became established. But then I found this other section, which I absolutely love. By what gradation the system rose to the perfect state of organisation under which it now exists, it would be a curious history to trace. Did managers and authors recognise the merit of their auxiliaries, or did the claqueur impose himself upon author and manager as indispensable? Where was the cause of the great progress in the trade, whence the effect? So here we've got the author actually fascinated in how this developed. However that may be, the fact is that the complete organisation of this arrangement has been proved by the most curious of documents laid before the legal tribunals in Paris in cases of actions being brought on the one side or the other by the engaging parties for fulfilment of contract. Not long ago, a regularly drawn up document of this kind was published in the newspaper, Law Court Reports, by which it appeared that a success contractor, as he styled himself, I love that phrase, James, success contractor. Love he it. had entered into an agreement. He had entered into an engagement with the manager of one of the first theatres in Paris to supply him with a certain quantity of successes for a certain quantity of pieces in return for certain ceded prerogatives, privileges, and advantages. These advantages consisted chiefly in a certain number of tickets given to him every night for his own disposal and profit. The whole pit upon first representations, together with so many boxes and stalls and other little pickings too numerous to mention. On his own part, the dramatic success contractor agreed to provide a certain number of men, decently dressed, to applaud and to be present himself in order direct when, where and how the applause was to be dispo sorry, was to be bestowed, to attend all of the rehearsals of new pieces and to arrange with the author the points where the applause was to be introduced. So they were actually working with the playwright. They're doing they're turning up at rehearsals to work out which bits need to have applause and when it would work well. And finally, to come to the manager's room when required to consult with him as to what actors or more generally what actresses were to be more especially applauded and supported. And all of this, James, the whole point about this is it's an extraordinary contract and it survives as a legal document. So there's a wonderful written physical history that you can go and study to get into this to see how it all developed. I'd love to see that. This is fantastic. Fantastic. I love the idea. We should employ people to come along to our live shows and clap. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> I, mean, I want to work with not, someone. Yeah. Not, not, not that people don't do it anyway, but I, I think an extra 100 people <laughs> in the audience, all of whom are there, paid to clap is, is superb. If you would like to be uh, one of these employees... <laughs> a clacker. <laughs> do, do please come, um, and we will uh, deal with it just as the way they did here. So um, early on, I'm afraid you don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> I love this idea of fake applause, though, because it links to it links for me to fear... Fear and clapping in Stalinist Russia. And oh, yeah. I, I think that's another way of thinking about it. And at a time when, um, when applause was used to not just look at support, but also as a sort of political technology to communicate with people, uh, I think looking at how that operated in Stalinist Russia gives us a really interesting insight into political strategies and political techniques and propaganda, but also the way in which the population felt and behaved. And there's an anecdote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a brilliant uh, Ru Russian writer in the Gulag Archipelago, where he describes 
in the novel, a district party conference uh, that was attended by Stalin. And the problem with Stalin is that when you when he came and spoke, you needed to applaud him and you needed to applaud him in a very over the top enthusiastic way and the applause would go on and on and on the problem was was knowing when you stopped and nobody <laughs> wanted to be the first person to stop and in this anecdote uh he Solzhenitsyn describes how the director of a local paper factory sits down you know he's had enough he sits down uh, and the rest of the crowd go, oh, brilliant, they can now sit down themselves. And after the meeting, the director was arrested. <laughs> and uh, historians have debated about whether this is, you know, whether this is real or not, or whether it's made up. But if you have a look at the phenomenon of reporting applause to speeches in Russian newspapers during the USSR, so under the the um, Soviet regime, there is an awful lot of emphasis put on it. So whenever a member of the the party sat in, uh, gave a speech, the newspaper would basically describe it in great detail and would pay real attention to describing the applause and. There were various ways that they would describe the applause from simply applause, which is basically your common or garden, you know, applause, enthusiastic applause, which is sort of stormy Japanese type applause, um, which would sort of make it sort of slightly more enthusiastic. Um, and then they would describe it as thunderous applause uh, or enthusiastic applause. Um, even bigger still was enthusiastic applause transitioning to an ovation. And if you have a look at early film footage of Stalin's speeches, you can see exactly how this kind of ovation works. And if you Google for um, Stalin's speech 1937, so we're at the height of the Great Terror here, there is a two and a half minute clip of Stalin receiving this applause at a campaign event and you can see that it after he's spoken applause starts for about five seconds and then it leads to enthusiastic applause which which lasts for about 15 seconds and then it goes into the enthusiastic applause transitioning to an ovation which lasts 22 seconds and then the final finale consists of three short bursts of applause before a massive ovation, everybody stands and keeps clapping. And over the next 15 years, you see applause operating in this way. And it isn't something that is natural. It is something that is largely panic driven, that is about fear. And it's often accompanied with long live comrade Stalin, glory to the revolution and other sort of other phrases like that that show your extreme loyalty to the leader and to the regime. And what's fascinating now, looking at what's happening in America around, you know, around Trump and the adulation that he quite obviously needs, is there is an emphasis on the amount of applause. You look at how 
applause worked at the State of the Union address. Um, and you look at the you look at the, the the acts of the speaker who literally just tore up uh, the papers of the speech at the end of it. Or you look at his obsession with numbers of supporters uh, at the inauguration parade. And there is this sort of sense that he himself is obsessed with popularity in this way as an index of his own, I suppose, his own ratings war with himself. I don't mean to draw was a parallel the, between the between Trump and um, and and Stalin, though. Of course. <laughs> Did you? Um, was that the the moment when um, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, does her her brilliant hand clap towards Trump? Yes, that the became sort of a meme. Um, the slow clap. He was. <laughs> yes, yes. He was talking about the. Um, oh, he's talking about the. Uh, how everyone should work, Republicans and Democrats should work together. He suddenly breaks away, starts talking about this. So she, she stops tearing stuff up, but then does this clap towards him in a very kind of pointed, slow way, which was, um, it was interesting at the time because a lot of people said it was sarcastic, which is which is, is proof that no one understands what sarcasm means. Lots of people in the press saying it was a sarcastic clap, and it wasn't a sarcastic clap necessarily. Um, and it, it's it's kind of a bit more loaded and a bit more subtle than that. It, but it's fascinating. If you, if you want to look at this, look at the Google Nancy Pelosi clap and what i love about that principally is um what we were talking about before is the uh the kind of the soundscape of history so whether or not you can you can hear her actually making that clapping noise the point is there's a massive subtext to what's going on which goes right to the heart of history so mm. yes she's applauding but she definitely isn't actually applauding and it means it it's a bit like trying to understand i don't know jokes jokes in the past isn't it if you're if you're not there or there are so many different layers of humor and layers of language and subtext in what's going on which is what makes history so challenging and rewarding james i think we should sum up. <laughs> i think we should do jokes i think we should do the history of humor yeah i'd, I'd be wonderful in the different ways you can think about it the other point about the um the stalinist applause is this sense of why people clap and you said at the beginning that clapping has a has a there's a science of clapping uh, it's quite a new discipline as far as i can work out but one of the most interesting papers i came across argued that applause it's it's like they described it as a social contagion yes. which i loved yeah. so it starts with one person clapping and then it spreads and so people are not necessarily clapping in response to how much they like something. They're clapping because they feel pressured into clapping. You know what that's like. You've always felt like, oh, I better give someone a clap for this. Uh, but that actually opens up a whole wonderful world of really deep historical questions because it's all to do with motivation and why you, why you actually, why you do things, why you act. And if it is a social contagion, which I think makes a lot of sense, then it's all to do with it. It's, it's, a, it's a chapter in the history of peer pressure. It's a chapter in the history of why you do something when you're in a group. And that's got so many different ways you can look at it. You can look at um, the, the history of, of joining up, you know, your, your country needs you poster, which I thought uh, really resonated with me, actually, thinking about trying to put myself in a position of understanding how people in the past acted because of societal pressures which are heaped up, heaped upon them. So joining up certainly is one, um, whether it's in the Second World War, First World War or any other any other wars. But also um, there's been a lot of work about this in terms of in terms of, of genocide, um, particularly the Holocaust, how and why people acted in the way that they acted during the Third Reich in relation to Jews. 
So you've got this this sense of pressure, and I think it's really fascinating. To think of of how people think and behave in groups rather than individually. So there's a there's a really interesting history there, which you can which you can you can take simply from the the humble clap, James, and then go on and explore all sorts of fascinating things about why people behave as they do in history. It's about crowds as well, crowd behaviour. I mean, we should do something on the history of the crowd, or the history of the mob. And gatherings like gatherings like that, and and herd mentality, so how people act ah. in a in a particular way because they are part of a of a large group, and how a large group or a large crowd ha- thinks and has its and and ha- how it how it acts and is motivated, and who are the figureheads of it. Um, Nazi Germany and the Holocaust is yeah is is absolutely fascinating and the conundrum there is how is how could the german people have allowed an atrocity like the holocaust to happen and you know that there are several different arguments put forward one is that is is absolute fear and that they did it because they told to um that doesn't necessarily explain those people who who didn't do it and and who who helped out and who protected Jewish people and and kept them hidden and helped them, you know, travel abroad. Um, and I think you know the the problem is, and it's something that the that the country has has had to grapple with, is that they is that there is this sort of what, irrespective of the fear, people did know what was going on, and you know, and there is a there is a, a degree of collusion. So from the clap, we get into a very sort of very sort of dark you know dark periods in in history but we talked earlier on about the ancient rome and about the the importance of clapping there and of course the um one of the the sort of the definitions of clap um plaudo uh in the the roman word plaudo means to clap clap your hands together and clapping was a very basic way of people seeing that they had approval and if you think about the ancient world without social media or opinion polls or knowing how popular things were, actually getting a an ovation or applause for theatre in the gladiatorial arena, for chariot races, politics, even walking down the streets as an important political figure, walking down the streets with your friends, if you are applauded by people who, you know, you're passing by, that shows your popularity. Or an emperor who puts on a games or does a sort of triumph, as you were saying earlier on, a triumphal entrance, you know, the applause that is accompanied by that is, you know, is is quite important. And in the Roman world, there were various ways that you could demonstrate your your pleasure with something uh, you could applaud you could also snap your thin your finger and and thumb you could wave the flap of your of your toga and there are various um different types of claps during this period um that the first type of clap is the sort of is clapping your palms together uh which is the which is called the brick uh and then the other type is when you cup your hands and clap them together. These are like these are called the tiles, uh, or the sort of there, and they're supposed to mimic the the Roman roof tiles, the curved roof tiles common in Roman architecture. And the third type of 
of clap, which isn't really a clap at all, but it's it's more a sort of noise, a humming, uh, is a sort of is uh, is called bees, and these different three different types of clap were imported from Alexandria by the Emperor Nero, um, who thought that they who was very impressed with them uh, and wanted to bring them back and and bring them to. To, to Rome after after they'd conquered that area. And there's an account of this by the historian Suetonius, um, where he describes the emperor summoned more men from Alexandria. Not content with that, he selected some younger men of the order of Achetes and more than 5,000 sturdy young plebeians to be divided into groups and learn the Alexandrian styles of applause and to ply them vigorously wherever he sang. These men were noticeable for their thick hair and fine apparel. Their left hands were bare and without rings and the leaders were paid 400,000 sesterces each. So in other words, he's bringing this new style of clapping into, into, um, into Rome. But also it's a precursor to what you were talking about earlier on, this paid clapping of the clack. But also my final anecdote about the... Uh, Romans uh, is the way in which during the time of the Roman decline of power when we see around the 7th century you've got the sort of barbarian hordes coming in and attacking all the different parts of the empire and the emperor Heraclius plans to meet a barbarian king and he wants to intimidate his opponent and what he the problem for him though is that obviously the barbarians are invading they are superior in their numbers of fighters and so what does the roman emperor do in order to intimidate well what he does is he hires a group of men to basically puff out the ranks to fill out the ranks to augment the legions that he's got but they're not there to fight instead these men are hired in order to applaud so that when he's when he's speaking you get this sort of thunderous applause and it's nothing about the actual practical military might of the roman army it's more the volume that they are able to produce and therefore to intimidate a barbarian leader so there we are we've gone all over the place today haven't we do you have any more um, well, I, I was very briefly going to just talk about um, how clapping is not necessarily to do with applause and to do with Ooh. approval. Ooh. And um, there is a absolutely fascinating thing. I'm really interested in cuneiform writing. Ooh. Always have been. And particularly, there's a, there's, a, there's a podcast we did on the exhibition on writing at the British Library. Yes. Um, which I was fascinated by. Anyway, it makes you think about what a book is. And here's a wonderful example of something that isn't really a book, but it is a book and to do with the writing and to do with clapping. It links it all together. It's called the Esarhaddon Prism and it was excavated in 1927 at the ancient Assyrian capital of Nineveh by the archaeologist Reginald Campbell Thompson. It's a 33 centimetre tall, six-sided clay prism with writing all over it. It dates to around 673 BC. And it's one of several examples. There are more in the Bible as well. Several examples of uh, clapping being associated with anger or anguish rather than approval. Hmm. So here we have 
uh, a description which is an anger uttered by Esarhaddon himself, whose accession to the throne is threatened by his brothers. I heard of their wicked deeds soon, and I said woe, and I ripped my princely garment, and I uttered a lament. I raged like a lion, and my mood became angry. I beat together my hands on account of the doings of the kingship of my father's house. I raised my hands up, and they accepted my prayer. With their true approval, they sent me a helpful omen. Go, do not delay. We will march at your side and we will slay your foes. Very, very powerful stuff. But it's just one of several examples from the ancient world where clapping is actually all about anguish and despair rather than approval. So bear that in mind. Uh, before we go, I just want to talk about why people shouldn't clap in Parliament. So MPs oh, okay. <laughs> not being able to clap. So basically what happened was in the election of 2015, a load of uh, SNP, so Scottish National Party MPs, 56 in all were elected to Parliament. And the tradition in the Scottish Assembly was to applaud people after they'd given speeches. And these MPs, when they sit in the House, they applaud um, Angus Robertson, their leader in Westminster, uh, when he is giving a speech and then Burko, who's the speaker at the at the time uh, says may I say at the start of the parliament that the convention that we do not clap in this chamber is a very very long established and widely respected and it would be appreciated if members showed some respect for that convention and I looked this up and have you, do you ever read Erskine May's treatise on the law, privileges, proceedings and usage of Parliament? That's top of my list of books you've given me to read. Excellent. Enough, well, James. the 25th edition, <laughs> 2019, is online and free to use by all and sundry. And the reason that it gives here, this is the sort of the Bible of protocols and etiquette in the House of Commons. The Select Committee on Modernisation of the House and Commons noted in 1998 that while spontaneous clapping at the end of a speech could not be interpreted as disturbance of the member speaking, if the practice became established, it could lead to a situation where the success or failure of a speech was judged not by its content, but by the length of the applause. Both applause and slow hand clapping could disrupt the tenor of the debate. The speaker has indicated that the rule against clapping did not preclude spontaneous reactions to a non, of a non-partisan character and that in practice it is a matter of judgment for the chair as to whether to intervene where applause has broken out spontaneously. As in the example of Tony Blair's speech, final speech to Parliament when he steps down as Prime Minister, there's a sort of there's a spontaneous uh, standing ovation for him. Anyway, it all goes back to the Civil War period, 1641. Um, and it's about the not interrupting the proceedings of Parliament by the kind of it's, it's by the kind of filibustering that you can get in in other institutions. And they say hear, hear as well, don't they? They Rather do say hear, hear. Sort of well done and clapped. So there's, yes. there's, there's something in, in place of it, so you can still demonstrate approval. Which comes, well, from, this is amazing. Which comes I've, from hear him, hear him, hear him. And we have heard you. We've heard me. That is our podcast on the history of applause. I really enjoyed that one. I really enjoyed I'm it going to be well. think, I'm going to be thinking about that a lot, actually, when I see people banging pans. And, oh, we didn't even do bells, I've just realised. Oh. Um, 
bell ringing in Tudor period to to demonstrate and to applaud the birth of new monarchs or or whatever it might be. Exactly. Nor did we do booing, Sam. The opposite of clapping. <laughs> Let's do that. I want to do a history of booing. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Boo. Hiss. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. If you want to find out what else is going on, check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. We're doing a homeschooling series we're very proud of. We've got some more exciting ones coming up. And we're doing hills for the Normans. We're doing scabs, which will be homeschooling uh, health in the medieval period. And a whole variety of fun things coming up. Do please check out patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected if you would like to donate to help us carry on with our mission to change the way people think about the past. It is no small mission we have set ourselves, James. But anyway, thank you all so much for, for listening to us. We enjoyed it as always and hope you'll come back soon. Bye, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye.